Okay, good evening. Um, welcome to What the Brain Can Tell Us About the Mind. This event is part of a series of events that is organized by the Forum of European Philosophers. Um, and tonight we're going to ask some questions about the brain, what it can tell us, if anything, about the mind. Can biology tell us anything about decision-making and emotion and about the self and personality? And this uh, subject um, is one that has been in the news recently. I just have a few quotes from, from some um, recent publications uh, with diverged opinions. So the first is from in the New York Times. This is by David Brooks, who says, the brain is not the mind. It is probably impossible to look at a map of a brain activity and predict or even understand the emotions, reactions, hopes, and desires of the mind. And I think some people might say, yes, the brain is not the mind. It's the mind is an emergent property of the brain. That is one opinion. Um, and then, on the other hand, we have Obama's Brain Initiative, which is, and I quote, a bold new research effort to revisionalize our understanding of the human mind. And in response to David Brooks, Eric Kundel, the Nobel Prize winner, also in the New York Times, said, in years to come, this increased understanding of the physical workings of our brain will provide us with important insight into brain disorders, whether psychiatric or neurological, but if we reserve, it will do even more. It will give us new insight into who we are as human beings. So tonight we brought together uh, some speakers who might have different opinions about this question. We have Ray Dolan, who's a professor of neuropsychiatry and director of the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging at University College London. Nicholas Rose is Professor of Sociology at King's College London, and Peter Hacker is Emeritus Research Fellow uh, from St. John's College, University of Oxford. Uh, I am Tali Sherrod. I'm a neuroscientist at University <coughs> College London. And the way that this event will work today is that each of the speakers will have about 12 minutes to speak, then we'll have a discussion on stage, and then it will open for Q&A. And before I introduce our first speaker, let me just say that if you're tweeting today, the suggested hashtag is LSEBrain. Um, so, our first speaker today is Ray Dolan. He's a professor of neuropsychiatry at UCL and director of the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging. He studies the neurobiology of emotion and decision-making. He has published over 400 peer-reviewed papers and is constantly ranked among the top five most cited neuroscientists in the world in the field of neuroscience. He has received numerous awards, including the Golden Brain Award, um, the International Max Planck Research Award. He was elected the Fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences in 2000 and the Fellow of the Royal Society in 2010. Um, and he will start our event today. Uh, thank you very much, Tali. Um, so I'm going to lead off, and of course I, leading off, will sort of speak or make the argument for the brain being important. And indeed, the question for many might be thought is ill-posed. Yet, I have to acknowledge that sort of reading newspapers, listening to people like David Brooks, and dare I say hearing people like Ray Tallis, um, this question generates a lot of heat and debate, Device, despite the fact that we would think it absurd if the same question was posed in relation to respiration or digestion. So let me start with a few assumptions that I think 
are not likely to be a matter of opinion and which can, might command a broad consensus. But I know I'm sort of putting a faith in the audience a lot here. Firstly, as respiration is a key function of the lungs and digestion is a key function of our alimentary tract, then you can equally describe the mind as a key function or property of the brain. Put simply, the brain is the organ of mind. There's no mind stuff that is independent of brain activity. Secondly, like everything else in the biological world, our brains and its products, our minds, have been shaped by evolutionary selective pressures. The nature of these pressures have changed over time. Thirdly, I would contend that there are continuities between our mental lives and those of other species, specifically our close relatives, other primates. Indeed, recent evidence points to a likely sophisticated mental structure in our deceased relatives, Neanderthals and Denisovans. And this is also consistent with overwhelming evidence now emerging from genetic data that there was a very powerful interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals and Denisovans, uh, evident in genetic traces. This is the case for people who live in Asia, uh, North America, Europe, less so for people living in Africa. So to illustrate the evolutionary argument, let's take human vision as an example, or vision in general. Over one-third of our brain is devoted to visual processing. We can reasonably assume that the, its dominance reflects its relative advantage to bipedal mammals. By comparison, the percentage of our brains devoted to other senses, such as taste and olfaction, is pretty paltry. This, of course, contrasts with other species, for example, a shrew, where a large part of the brain is devoted to olfaction and a relatively small part of the brain is devoted to vision. I think we can also assume that the adaptive pressures faced by our hominid ancestors, say, over a million years ago, were different for those in place that have confronted us over the last 100,000 years. The type of pressures more proximal in time are likely to relate to factors such as increasing socialization and a move from a hunter-gatherer to an agrarian-based existence. Selective pressures in this context are likely to have had major consequences for our brains, arguably leading to the emergence of language and a sophisticated theory of mind. It's also worth bearing in mind that the engine of evolution, as expressed in our physical makeup, has a habit of leaving residues. An extreme example here is an appendage called the appendix in our alimentary tract, which there is no obvious function. This is also likely to be the case for our brain. We still retain an ancient alarm system centered on a part of the brain called the amygdala that we know has remained in place largely unchanged over half a billion years. The crocodile provides a living fossil of this unchanging architecture. So, what are the basic facts we know about the brain that inform our knowledge of the mind, and what are the challenges? I'm going to address this question from the perspective of different scales of reference. And for the sake of interest, as I go up the scale, I'll take more liberties in terms of the claims I make. That's not 
allowing me, however, the liberty to make preposterous claims. Let's first consider the brain at the microscopic level. Now, for those of you who are not experts, we know that the brain is composed of billions of neurons, or elements, 100 billion in all, each of them making perhaps up to 10,000 connections. So these neurons are separated from each other, but they make contacts across microscopic gaps called synapses. The strength of connection between these synapses is subject to dynamic change, strengthening and weakening on the basis of experience. This is usually referred to as brain plasticity, and it's known to form the biological basis of a core faculty of mind, which we can refer in this context to stable, as stable memory or persistent memory. So what does this level of organization tell us about the mind? Well, if you have failure to express this experience-dependent plasticity at synapses, it has profound consequences for our minds. It results, for example, in an inability to learn new information or material. And if the situation worsens, it means that we lose persistent or stable memories that we've already acquired. The classic case is the tragedy of Alzheimer's disease. In other words, it leaves a person so afflicted with a greatly impoverished mind. So if we go up the scale to the next level, which I'm going to call the systems level of organization, at this higher level, we know that the brain obeys principles of anatomical specialization. This means that distinct cortical areas support specialized functions. Let's again take the example of vision. Vision is represented by the back of the brain, it's called the visual cortex. But within the visual cortex, there is sub-specialization. Discrete aspects of visual processing are subserved by discrete aspects of anatomy. So color, form, motion, each have their specialized zones. What follows from this is that our visual experience of the world has to arise out of an integration or conjoining of these functions across specialized processing units. This stops us from inhabiting a, visual, a world that is visually fractured. If we suffer brain damage, we can become privy to this fractionation, as, for example, in people who cannot experience motion, referred to as kinetopsia, or people who don't experience color, achromatopsia. Although I do not have time to go into this principle of functional specialization further, goes without saying that this is a hierarchical process and that this specialization goes right up the scale to include specialization for abstract representations, planning, and indeed the attribution of value to things in the world. So how does this systems level of knowledge help us understand what we call the mind? Well, at the most general level, it tells us that what we call mind is an ensemble of specializations. This being the case, it follows that we can lose bits of our mind while preserving other bits. I'm going to give you a few examples. Take the example of damage to a structure called the hippocampus, which is a structure involved in memory. It's important for learning or acquiring new autobiographical memories. A person with damage to this structure no longer can acquire new autobiographical <coughs> memories and at the same time will not be aware that they have this impairment. 
In other words, a mind with this type of damage will no longer apprehend the true state of affairs as it pertains to themselves. Another example is damage to a part of the brain called the fusiform cortex. This is a part of the visual brain, and if damaged, you lose the ability to recognize faces. And this occurs in a context where you can recognize every other object. This is known as prosopagnosia, described for over 100 years, but was not amenable to any easy explanation until we had a concept of functional specialization within the brain. If we take a further example, the so-called Capgras syndrome, a syndrome where a person will become convinced that somebody close to them, say their spouse, is not really them, but is some imposter. How do we understand that? This was the source of endless speculation within psychology and psychoanalysis, but it becomes easily explicable if we have a concept of functional specialization. There is functional specialization for the recognition of memory, but also for the attribution of emotional value to that representation. If they are disconnected, then you can have an experience of a person you're very familiar with, perhaps love, but where their image no longer evokes that emotion, leading rationally to the idea that they have been replaced by an imposter. So these black holes in our minds are only understandable if we have a concept of brain structure and of brain functional specialization. And this concept forms the basis for explaining a rich variety of phenomena, as well as serving as the driving force for developments in the brain that have occurred over the past 100 years and, of course, have gathered pace over the last 20 to 30 years. The third level of conceptualization of the brain is the idea of functional integration. And this builds on what we know is the functional specialization of discrete units. And it pertains to the idea that these must be brought together in order to give coherence to our mental life. So where can we experience this coherence or lack of coherence within an intact brain? Well, if you were to take a drug such as LSD, described as a mind-altering drug, in such a scenario, we're likely to experience visual hallucinations, but more likely to experience something called synesthesia, and this is where an experience in one sensory modality evokes an experience in another. And a very common form of this is where a word will evoke a specific color. This is also a phenomenon that occurs outside the context of having taken drugs. So how can we explain this? Well, we can explain it on the basis of functional integration because what we've got is a situation where the drug has changed the connectivity between a part of the brain that represents words and represents colors, and so information that would normally be segregated from the color region, evoked by a word, is propagated there. Now, I mentioned earlier that evolution might leave residues of the past, and this equally applies as much to our brain as to any other organ. And some of the best examples of human irrationality might reflect this residue. For 
example, our susceptibility to vary our preferences depending on whether an option given to us is framed in a positive or negative light, the so-called framing effect described by Daniel Kahneman. This often occurs in the context, say, of medical advice, where you're offered a treatment, and where a physician might say, if you have this treatment, you have a 10% chance of dying. Or the physician might say, give you the same information, but saying, if you have this treatment, you have a 90% chance of living. Of course, the information is exactly the same, but the decision whether to accept or reject the treatment is critically influenced by the frame in which it's presented. We now know that this bias in choice is driven by this vestigial structure which I referred to as the amygdala. So what we can tentatively argue is that some forms of irrationalities of the mind can arise out of an evolutionary specified hardwired response system that still remains in our brain. It's important to acknowledge that the language of the brain is not, of course, the language of the mind. As yet, we've no Rosetta Stone that facilitates a direct translation between the two. The language of brain sciences include concepts such as action potentials, neurotransmission, synaptic release, and this finds no easy translation into concepts of the mind. For example, concepts such as beliefs, intentionality, motives, let alone states such as love or hate. But even here, I go on far and suggest that general theories of how the brain works are beginning to provide insight into these high-level concepts. So let's take the perplexing issue of beliefs. An emerging account of brain function is that to reduce the dimensionality of our ongoing <coughs> sensory experience, where we're bombarded by visual inputs, auditory inputs, gustatory inputs, etc., the brain constrains the processing space by forming predictions about what are the likely sensory inputs. This is what enables you to catch a ball that somebody throws to you, because in principle that ball could come to you at any speed from snail pace right up to close to the speed of light. But we know in the real world that actually balls thrown to you travel maybe between 5 and 15 miles, 20 miles an hour if you're not a top-class cricket player. So we already have a prediction that we can use to constrain our sensory motor system. So these predictions can be couched in terms of beliefs, which I would refer to as probability distributions over likely future states of the world. These beliefs are susceptible to change based upon the sensory evidence. In other words, ongoing experience is a dynamic interaction between inputs, the sensory evidence, and the predictions generated in our brains. It's intriguing that this type of functional architecture might begin to explain some of the most complex pathological states of mind. So take the common case of acute confusion, or in medical parlance, delirium, which is often seen in medical hospitals where you've got conditions such as liver failure, what you see in alcohol withdrawal, or delirium tremens, or following intoxication with, say, cholinergic drugs, such as atropine poison, a poison used by Aztec Indians. Here, the confusion reflects the fact that our minds have become slaves to our sensory inputs. We're unable to form predictions or beliefs that can constrain those inputs. On the other side of the coin, we've got delusions where our beliefs or predictions about the world 
have become impervious to the sensory evidence. We now know that key process in determining this dynamic is the role of what are called neuromodulatory agents, drugs such as dopamine or acetylcholine. And this now begins to provide us with an important approach to understanding such high-level uh, uh, high complex phenomena. I'll finish by pointing out that in certain domains there are serious perils associated with failing to acknowledge a connection between brain and mind. The most telling examples, of course, occur in jurisprudence, where there's abundance of examples. One clear example that many of you might know might be the singer Marvin Gaye, who was shot by his own father, who was a, a preacher. This might be seen as an example of the father's anger at his son having gone down the road of a rock and roll, drug-infested, porn-addicted lifestyle. However, when he came to trial, it was discovered that his father had a tumour that was pressing on his prefrontal cortex. Now, I'm not saying that provides the full explanation, but I'm saying that it would be very... Um, it would be a great injustice to overlook that fact. So, to conclude, I take a strong view that to deny the brain is the organ of the mind is akin to being a flat earther. Understanding the brain has emerged as one of the most informative ways we have of understanding the mind. We must, of course, beware of hubris and admit that in spite of great progress in brain sciences, we have as yet not progressed beyond the most elementary descriptive stages. We are in the foothills in our search for knowledge of the relationship between mind and brain. Pursuing a deep understanding of how the brain generates the mind entails not only a lot of hard work, dead ends and disappointments, but also a fair amount of silly science. However, we should be tolerant, and none of these should be showstoppers. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Nicholas Rose. He's a professor of sociology and the head of uh, the department of the newly launched Department of Social Sciences, Health and Medicine at King's College London. He was previously a professor at the London School of Economics. He's written a few books, and today I believe he's going to tell us about his latest book, um, which is titled Neuro, The New Brain Sciences and the Management of the Mind, which he co-authored with Joel Abirashad. Thanks very much, Tali, and uh, yeah, it's nice to be back here at the LSE, where I spent 10 happy years. Um, for those of you expecting polemics, I should probably start by saying that there's not all that much that I disagree with uh, about the talk that you've just had. Um, but rather than, in, apart perhaps from the, uh, the uh, raising at the end of the forensic issues of neuroscience, which perhaps we'll come back to in question time, um, but let me just say a little bit about my own approach to these issues. Uh, as Tally said, I'm a, I'm a sociologist, happily in a sandwich between the neuropsychiatrist and the philosopher. Um, and my work over uh, a long time has focused on one particular question, uh, which I suppose you might think of as a question of identity, although I pose it really slightly differently. So my question is, who do we think we are, us human beings? How have we come to think about ourselves in that way? And um, with what consequences? 
Um, now, I've had a particular focus in trying to address that question of who we think we are on uh, the development, especially since the middle of the 19th century, of what one might call the positive sciences of the human being, the sci sciences and now the neurosciences, their languages, their explanations, their visions and their forms of expertise. Um, about uh, 10, 12 years ago, when I began the field work in philosophy, as, as I term it, which led to that book, Neuro, which uh, Tali was kind enough to, to mention with my good colleague, Joël Abirachet, um, when I started doing this field work on the neurosciences, I was uh, anticipating that we were on the cusp of a profound renegotiation of the idea of what it was to be human. Um, that work that I was doing followed on from about a decade's work on uh, the life developments in the life sciences and biology and genetics, where I'd argued that there was a profound somatization, a reanimation uh, of the sense of ourselves as somatic or corporeal beings and an organization of our ethics and indeed our profound sense of what, uh, what we can hope for, what our destiny might be, which is organized around our somatic existence. And I was anticipating something similar happening in relation to the development of the neurosciences. What in particular I was thinking of was the possibility that we would see a closing down of that deep interior space which historians of the sci sciences will tell us opened up in the 19th century. The space of mental life, the space of the mind, an interior space between the organs and, the, and conduct that could only be understood in terms of its own laws, its own processes and its own internal attributes. I was expecting to see a closing down of that space. Um, and the emergence of arguments that conduct, emotion, volition, and so on could be mapped directly onto the brain. And linked to that, I was expecting to see a transformation of the way in which our experts tried to shape and manage and organize our lives a transformation from the psi complex in which we saw all kinds of aspects of our lives managed by experts in, psycho in psychology, whether they be social workers, whether they be probation officers, whether they be advisors to us on uh, how we should bring up our kids. Were we seeing a transformation from that psi complex with the crucial importance of psychological expertise to our forms of life to a kind of neurocomplex in which we were governed through our brain? Well, actually, in the 10 years or so that I spent working with, neuroscience, with neuroscientists, partly in a, in a terrific uh, network called the uh, European Neuroscience and Society Network, where we work very closely with neuroscientists across uh, Europe, what I found was a much more complex picture. And I think we possibly get a hint of that more complex picture uh, in the talk that we've just heard from Ray Dolan. Of course, there are some who I believe you philosophers, if you're in the house, will refer to as eliminative materialists, uh, especially amongst the popularizers of the implications of neuroscience. Those people who argue that our folk psychologists, our folk psychologists, our belief in our internal life, of the determinative power of mental states like beliefs and so on, that those are merely uh, uh, illusions. 
they are powerful illusions they certainly shape the way in which we understand ourselves in the world but actually what we should try and do is understand all those mental states as actually fundamentally grounded in processes within the brain but actually if you explore what's happening in contemporary neuroscience I think something much more interesting is going on. Because, of course, it's those eliminative uh, materialists who are largely the target of the criticism and the critique by people like Ray Tallis in his arguments about neuromania. But actually, I think, if you listen to people like Ray Dolan and many other neuroscientists, the kind of style of thought that's taking shape here is more complicated. It's not that human beings are brains. It's not that our mental life, our mind, is unimportant. It's merely an epiphenomenon. It's merely an ex post facto rationalization of decisions that are already taken at the level of the neurons. Of course, there are some who think like that. And some of you may have come across the experiments of Benjamin Libet, which seem to show that the brain makes up its mind before you become conscious of the urge to act. And the whole cascade of work on volition that's followed from that, including, I think, some really unwise arguments about what's going to happen in the legal system with the, uh, uh, with the exposure of ideas of free will as a, as a fundamental illusion about the way in which we are in the world. But I think those Ben Libet uh, experiments are overhyped and really don't characterize uh, how uh, the styles of thought that are beginning to emerge. Those styles of thought don't think of human beings as brains, but of human beings as creatures that have brains, that have brains that in important and in largely non-conscious ways shape our possibility for experience, for feelings, for thoughts, and for desires. Now, the terms that are used to explain that relationship between our feelings, thoughts, wishes, and desires, and these neural processes, I think are uh, hand-waving, but nonetheless point to an interesting problem which I'll uh, talk about in in a second. They say that our mental states are subserved by, or that our mental states have neural correlates in the brain, or our mental states are underpinned by neural processes, or we couldn't have mental states without neural processes. Most of those things, I think, in some vague way, hint towards a relationship that we need to try and understand. But I think we need to recognize that not only do we not understand that relationship, but we don't even have the beginnings of a language to think about that translation between neural processes and mental processes. In any event, of course, there's absolutely nothing new in the belief that much of what shapes our conscious experience happens at an unconscious level. Of course, that was the profound insight of psychoanalysis, but not only of psychoanalysis. Most cultures throughout human history have recognized that humans are shaped and mobilized by forces that they don't understand and are beyond their consciousness. That the ego and consciousness is not master in its own house. And if I may be forgiven in in an audience of neuroscientists and philosophers to quote the heretical psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, Jacques Lacan said, at the very moment when I assent to my identity, I am wagged by another. So that that understanding 
that it is a fantasy and illusion to believe our ego is in control of our actions or perceives and understands even the smallest part of what it is that shapes us. It's not as radical as some people argue. And yet, while we know a huge amount about the brain at the molecular level, the basic, the earliest level which Ray Dolan talked about uh, in, his, in his short talk a moment ago. We know almost nothing about how those events at a molecular level translate up, even to molar levels of circuits within the brain, let alone to mental levels and whatever. We don't even have the language to think about this. Now, some might say that that problem, that problem which is largely posed by the huge role that reductionism has played as an experimental paradigm in the neurosciences, that that uh, uh, conundrum of how we move from uh, understanding events at the (coughs) neuromolecular level with this profound neuromolecular gaze that has taken shape in the neurosciences since the 1960s, that that can be resolved by neuroimaging. We have a bottom-up understanding of mental processes based on our understanding of the molecular attributes of synapses, of neurons, of uh, of membrane potentials, and so on. But we can have a top-down understanding of how these events are integrated into into large-scale processes in the human brain by observing the human brain in scanners and through the processes of neuroimaging. Now, this, I think, has become a very, very powerful way in which neuroscience has come to impact on our understandings of ourselves in our everyday world. But actually, I think those images that we have from neuroimaging are profoundly misleading. And we need to understand how, just how misleading they are if we are going to be able to make some sense of how we do move from the molar to the molecular. There's an old, um, an old argument in uh, the sociology and history of science called tools to theories, that what starts off as a tool ends up as a theory. And I think that tools to theories hypothesis, actually formulated, I think, initially by a historian of, of statistics called Gugarenza, that tools to theories hypothesis actually captures something really interesting about what's going on with neuroimaging today. Because the most powerful tool that we have, the scanner, which has now become so cheap that many, if not most, uh, neuroscience labs can, uh, can afford them, appears to give images who, which are, in their characteristics, like photographs or like the images that are produced by structural imaging of the human body and, indeed, of the human brain. But, of course, they're not. They're highly complex simulations of of patterns in the human brain based on the hypothesis, and not a a hypothesis I think that should go unquestioned, that the changes in levels of blood oxygenation in different regions of the human brain indicate which regions of the human brain are actively involved in certain mental processes. This idea, this localization thesis, I think has many fundamental problems with it. First of all, there's a problem of scale. Um, Now, uh, as you probably know, neuroimaging works in terms of imaging the blood flow changes in a voxel in the human brain. 
Well, a typical voxel at the highest level of acuity in contemporary neuro, neuroimaging contains 5.5 million neurons, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of synapses, 22 kilometers of dendrites, and 200 kilometers of axons of nerve fibers. So what scale should we try and understand the brain at? As one neuroimager said to me in the course of this research that I was doing, it makes no sense at all to read a newspaper with a microscope. And yet, to some extent, neuroimaging is reading a newspaper, that is a machine that is capable of producing mental states, with a microscope that is seeing what's happening at very small, and perhaps even then not small enough, levels of acuity. The second problem, and I think this is another fundamental problem in, uh, in neuroimaging, is the idea that it is the brain that is the sole location of the functions that are being observed. You place an individual in a scanner, in a room where they're instructed by a scientist to carry out certain tasks, and yet all you observe in your image is what's happening in the brain. You rather ignore the fact that brains are in skulls, that skulls are in bodies, that the brain in the normal course of events receives uh, information from throughout the body, and indeed that brain and body are fundamentally uh, uh, intricated in a set of social relationships. To separate out from that simply what's happening in changes in patterns of blood oxygenation in the brain seems to me to ignore certain rather important things that we've learned in the social sciences and indeed in the cognitive sciences over the last 150 years. Um, Not only the fact that the brain is perhaps the most malleable of organs, constantly open to flows of information and data and sensations from the body and from the world outside, and constantly transforming at uh, timescales from the millisecond to the decade, not only ignoring that, but ignoring most of the functions, ignoring the fact that most of the functions which we attributed to brain are actually in human reality distributed functions. Take language, for instance, uh, take cognition in general. So I have no time to go into the the species of the extended or distributed, extended mind or distributed cognition. But I think we're in danger in a whole series of ways in these top-down ways of thinking about the brain, of attributing not only false concreteness to the image, but attributing forced false individuality to what we see as happening inside the brain and failing to recognize that the brain in humans in naturally occurring situations is one key element in thought, one key element in will, one key element in desire, but it's neither the origin of nor the sole location of those functions. The reductionism, experimental reductionism in the neurosciences has really helped us understand a huge amount about what goes on at that basic neuromolecular level. But as we've seen again and again and again, the problems of scaling up are not just problems of, are not just technical problems, they are conceptual problems take just one tiny example which is scaling, which is moving from uh, work with laboratory animals on, on neuropsychiatric disorders and on the effects of neuropsychiatric drugs 
to understanding how those things work in humans in naturally occurring settings. Uh, the failure of translation from the lab to the clinic is very well known in, uh, in neuroscience, but it has a conceptual and not just a practical basis, it seems to me. I'll just conclude by saying a little bit about one of the activities that I'm involved in, which is the Human Brain Project. Um, the Human Brain Project, you may have heard about that, is 1.3 billion euros allocated to it by uh, the European Commission to uh, build uh, the conventional way of thinking about it, to, vi to build a virtual brain, to build a virtual brain. Um, but if you look at... And actually what the Human Brain Project is, which is, which is slightly more interesting than that, it's not a data generation project, it's a data integration project. It starts from the fact that there are something like 100,000 papers, refereed papers, published in the neurosciences every year, and yet the data from those 100,000 papers exists in silos in different sectors of neuroscience and is never, ever brought together into an integrated understanding of the human brain. Part of it is integrating that data, and part of it is trying to integrate the data that's held in hospitals and clinics and, uh, and clinical records in, uh, in, uh, in all the sites across Europe where people are treated for, for brain diseases and trying to see if you can extract from that massive amount of big data the signatures of brain diseases and link them to their progression across the life course. If you look at the... Um, publications of the Human Brain Project, and indeed if you look at the publications of Obama's Brain Initiative, I think you'll see there's a, there's a difference in the, in the technical publications that you see there from some of the popular statements. The popular statements, I think, do illustrate a certain problem of hubris amongst the scientists, amongst the neuroscientists. Over-promising. We're going to find the solution to brain disorders. We're going to understand the secret of consciousness. We're going to reveal the secret of this most complex of all human organs. But if you read the Human Brain Project and you read what's said in the Brain Initiative, I think you'll find that they end up pretty much in the place where Ray Dolan ends up. These are hugely complicated issues. They are going to take 10, 20, 30, 50, maybe 100 years to resolve. Many of these issues we don't even have the language to pose, let alone the language to resolve. I'm a, I'm a great admirer of neuroscience and certainly agree that we've known more in the last 20 or 30 years than we have in all the decades before that about the functioning of the human brain. But I think we need to avoid hype, avoid oversimplification, avoid reduction, avoid belief that we know in anything more than a slogan the fact that mind is what brain does. Maybe mind is in part what brain does, but the story is much more complicated than that. Thank you. And our last speaker is Peter Hacker. He's a philosopher and emeritus research fellow at St. John's College, University of Oxford. He currently holds a chair of philosophy at University of Kent at Cumbury. Um, his principal expertise is the philosophy of the mind. Um, and he is, as you will hear today, I think, an outspoken conceptual critic of cognitive neuroscience. Over to you. Thank you.
but I think there may be slightly disappointing consensus <laughs> among, among us this evening, which I confess I hadn't fully expected. Um, uh, I agree with a great deal of what both Ray and Nicholas have said, and their admirable caution in not making excessive claims on behalf of, uh, of the future of neuroscience. Um, throwing large sums of money at a scientific problem may yield spectacular results, as in the case of molecular biology. But a condition for success is that science is mature. It is mature precisely to the extent that, firstly, its technical methods are trustworthy, secondly, its conceptual foundations are sound, and thirdly, its questions are cogent. Otherwise, the provision of funding may be akin to Henry VIII's providing unlimited money for Paracelsus to solve the problems of the elements. Now, I hope the latter comparison is wrong, but I'm sure that the former one is. Initiating a brain project is altogether unlike support for molecular biology. Although neuroscientific research has made spectacular progress, it is evident that only the surface has been scratched. The fundamental technology and statistical methods that have informed tens of thousands of scientific papers over the last two decades, such as fMRI, are anything but uncontroversial, indeed controverted by their inventor, Ogawa. However, the reliability of fMRI is not a subject upon which a philosopher has any license to comment. What I shall comment on is the adequacy of the conceptual framework generally accepted by neuroscientists. I distinguish between our psychological conceptual scheme and the psychological conceptual framework for cognitive neuroscientific research. By a conceptual scheme, I understand a network of interrelated general concepts and concept types a language-using community deploys in thought and talk in some domain of experience. The web of psychological concepts and concept types constitutes our psychological conceptual scheme. It is at work in our daily discourse, and indeed it is partly constitutive of our nature as rational creatures and human beings. A conceptual scheme, like a language such as English, is neither true nor false, only more or less useful. That is, by the way, why there is no such thing as folk psychology. Our psychological conceptual scheme provides the trunk upon which are grafted the more refined, specialised, theory-laden conceptual schemes of the sciences of psychology and cognitive neuroscience. These presuppose, both genetically and analytically, the more basic conceptual apparatus out of which they grow. Now, it is one thing to have mastered the elements of our conceptual scheme, as we all have. It is quite another to be able to describe the logical network they form. This is the proper domain of philosophical investigation. The nature of the investigation is a priori, not empirical. The enterprise is descriptive, not theoretical. The methods of investigation are no more experimental than are the methods of mathematics, and the results of the investigation are no more confirmable by experiment than are mathematical theorems. They are the methods of logical, conceptual, and linguistic analysis. The goal is the provision of a perspicuous representation of a conceptual field. The conceptual framework of cognitive neuroscience consists of the conceptions prevalent among neuroscientists of our psychological conceptual scheme. Now, that framework is adequate 
to the extent to which it accords with a correct representation of the conceptual relations within the domain of psychological concepts pertinent to neuroscientific investigation. It is inadequate to the extent to which it transgresses the bounds of sense. I'd like to emphasize that this criterion of adequacy in no way constrains cognitive neuroscience, since beyond the bounds of sense lies nothing but the void, that is, non-sense. This criterion of adequacy doesn't prevent neuroscientists from introducing new technical concepts for specialized purposes, nor does it prohibit stretching or delimiting existing concepts in novel ways. But this has to be done with care. It's usually, I'm afraid, done carelessly, and incoherence then results. In order to understand the conceptual framework of contemporary cognitive neuroscience, one must have some idea of how it arose. Until the 1960s, the conceptual framework accepted by leading neuroscientists was broadly dualist, a less than coherent amalgam of the woefully inadequate Cartesian and empiricist philosophies of psychology. <coughs> from mid-century, the conceptual framework of immaterial mind and material body fell from favor, rightly. It was replaced by a conceptual framework no less misguided, which I have elsewhere characterized and caricatured as brain-body dualism. Thinking that the fundamental flaw of classical dualism is its conception of the mind as an immaterial substance, neuroscientists labored under the illusion that the sole theorist alternative to dualism is reductive materialism. They supposed that if one but rid oneself of the idea of an immaterial mind and identified the mind with the brain or with properties or activities of the brain, then everything else could remain the same. The consequence of this has been that the deepest traditional conceptual incoherences remained intact. The most fundamental flaw in the conceptual framework of contemporary neuroscience is not that it is anti-Cartesian, but rather that it's not nearly anti-Cartesian enough. It transposes all the incoherences of the Cartesian and empiricist traditions from mind to brain. The crypto-Cartesianism manifest in current neuroscience is indeed everywhere evident, and I shall give five examples. The thought advanced by Libet, Frith, Haggard, Wegener, that voluntary or intentional action is bodily movement preceded by an act or experience of willing, wanting, desiring, or intending, is a piece of bad 17th century philosophy prominent in Hobbes, Descartes, and Locke. To suppose that it is movement caused by the brain's act of decision is merely to add 21st century nonsense to 17th century nonsense. <laughs> Secondly, the idea advanced by Crick, Edelman, Damasio, Candel, and Barlow that visual perception involves the generation of internal images in the brain that may or may not resemble light-reflecting objects around us is a rerun of Locke's causal theory of perception bad 17th century metaphysics, not 21st century science. Visual experience is not having internal images in the brain caused by objects outside the brain. It is perceiving visible features of the environment. Thirdly, the binding problem, namely the problem of how the brain brings together information derived from various sense organs, and synthesizes it into a unified picture of the world outside is an incoherent question first raised, alas, on a Monday morning by Aristotle 
and repeated ever since by both philosophers such as Aquinas, Descartes, Locke and Kant and contemporary neuroscientists Singer, Gray, Crick, Kandel and Wurz. For the brain does not synthesize information in any ordinary sense of information and it certainly doesn't form inner pictures. There is a problem of how the brain uh, synthesizes or unifies uh, the signals coming from the various sense organs and that can be handled, although we still don't have full answers to the question by a very long shot. Fourthly, the idea that the brain has cognitive and cogitative powers, a view advanced by Young, Zaniger, Zecchi, Blakemore and almost everybody else, is a form of nonsense generated from substituting the brain for the mind in the Cartesian empiricist traditional framework. For according to that tradition, it is the mind that thinks and reasons, knows and believes, guesses and hypothesizes. But it's neither the mind nor the brain that possesses cognitive and cogitative powers. It is the human being. It is not my mind or my brain that reasons. I do. I don't do anything cogitative or cognitive with my brain. And I do things with my mind only in the sense in which I do things with my talents, not in the sense in which I do things with my hands. That is, among other things, one reason why I would disagree with Ray that the brain can be characterized as the organ of the mind, at least in the sense in which the eyes can be characterized as the organs of sight. Fifthly, the idea that memory is essentially of the past as well as the idea that memories are stored in the form of traces, is likewise a 4th century BC vintage. Nevertheless, it is prominent among neuroscientists such as Kandel, Squire, Gazaniga, Milner. But memory need not be of the past. It has to be acquired in the past, but it may be of the future, it may be omnitemporal, or it may be atemporal. Memories can be stored in diaries and on computers, but neither in the mind nor in the brain. To remember is to retain knowledge, not to store it. A fortiori memories cannot, logically cannot, be, I quote, stored as changes in strength at many synapses with a large ensemble of neurons, as is suggested by Squire and Kandel. Of course, brain changes may indeed occur in the hippocampus and remain there for a long time. These may be conditions for the retention of certain abilities, as is indeed the case with rats learning how to negotiate a maze. But of course, such relatively persistent brain states are not the memory of how to do anything, but a condition for the animals remembering how to do something. And to be sure, there's little hope in getting far in the neuroscience of memory, if one thinks, as Kandel does, that memory is any change in the behavior of an organism consequent upon experience. If that were true, then limping after ricking one's ankle would be remembering. Well, I could go on for another day or two, but I trust that it is evident that not all is well with the conceptual framework within which contemporary neuroscience operates. But if the conceptual framework is awry, then incoherence ensues. Questions that make no sense will be asked, experiments will be designed to answer questions that make no sense, and the results of experiments will be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And these are serious matters. 
So finally, let me turn to the question which it debates. What can the brain teach us about the mind? No doubt, a very great deal. Still, if the mind is the brain, then the brain can teach us everything about the mind. But of course, the mind is not the brain. The brain weighs three pounds and is seven inches high, but the mind has neither weight nor height. The brain is an organ, but the mind is not. The brain consists of material parts. The mind does not consist of anything. Indeed, the mind is not a thing or entity of any kind. If the mind is the activity of the brain, then we can find out everything that is to be found out about the mind by studying the activity of the brain. But of course, the mind is not the activity of the brain or of anything else. What is going through your mind can't be answered by oxygenated blood. And if electrochemical impulses are being transmitted from one part of the brain to another, say from the chiasma to the visual striate cortex, it does not follow, since it makes no sense, that impulses are being transmitted from one part of the mind to the other. If the mind is what the brain does, as Professor Rose suggested, then studying what the brain does will tell us everything there is to know about the mind. But of course the mind is not what the brain does. The mind does not metabolize oxygen or transmit neural impulses to the muscles of the body. Finally, if the mind is an emergent property of the brain, as Vernon Mountcastle suggested, then we can find everything that can be found out about the mind by studying properties of the brain. But the mind, to repeat, is not a property of anything, let alone a property of the brain. Brains doubtless have many properties, but the mind is not one of them. It's human beings that have minds. And of course, they would not have minds but for their brains. So far, so not very good. <laughs> one thing is clear. The brain cannot teach us what the mind is, nor can the study of the brain resolve conceptual problems, such as do we have free will, any more than the study of mathematics can resolve problems in physics. So what is the mind? Well, it's perhaps not a very good question, for it makes us expect the wrong kind of answer, namely an answer beginning of the with the words, the mind is a so-and-so, or the mind is an such-and-such. But the mind isn't an anything. Perhaps the question, what is the mind, is like the illicit question, what is a sake? Just as, we can, just as we can ask, what is it to do something for another's sake, so too we can ask, what is it to have a mind? To which the answer is that to have a mind is to have an array of abilities of intellect and rational will characteristic of language-using animals. To have a mind is not to possess some entity, material or immaterial, that is causally related to the body. It is to be able to do a vast range of things. It is to be able to think, to imagine, to reason and to deliberate. It is to be able to infer consequences from grounds, to arrive conclusions from premises. It is to be able to acquire and retain knowledge, to harbour beliefs and opinions, to recollect and not merely to remember. It is to be able to act for reasons, to weigh reasons for action, to deliberate and to come to a decision on the basis of reason, reasons, to form intentions and to make long-term plans. It is to be capable not merely of contentment and satisfaction, but of happiness. And it is to be capable of knowledge of good and evil, and so on. We study abilities by studying their exercise. That is why cognitive neuroscience can never displace psychology. 
but we can also study what makes abilities possible. Since all our abilities and their exercise depend, among other things, upon the normal functioning of the brain, the study of the brain can reveal what makes it possible for us to possess the kinds of powers we possess. Above all, it can teach us how damage to the brain through injury, disease or ageing can deprive us of the abilities characteristic of our species or can lead to the withering of these powers. And it is thereby that we may be able to ameliorate or cure the dreadful neural diseases that afflict mankind. Cognitive neuroscience will be able to achieve such goals more efficiently and reliably if it rids itself of the numerous deep conceptual incoherence incoherences that characterize its current conceptual framework. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we don't have as much time as, as we were hoping for, but maybe just one question uh, before we open up for everyone else. Um, Maybe I'll give you, Ray, an option, um, some time to respond, and let me ask you a question. Um, talking about neuroimaging and fMRI, um, what do you think is the role of fMRI in neuroscience and in understanding the mind, and why has it been getting such bad reputation? Yeah, well, I, I think we, we heard one reason is that um, this is a technique that has become cheaper, more common. Um, there's a sense, particularly within psychology departments, that you cannot now do psychology without an MRI machine. So I think there's a lot more of it happening, and if there's a lot more of it happening, it's like, you know, um, you're going to have a lot more bad science. But I think there's some fundamental misunderstandings about neuroimaging too. <laughs> Because imaging isn't just about images. It really has nothing to do with images. The images are just simple ways of statistically representing something. And a very common misconception propagated by uh, a lot of philosophers, Jerry Fodor would be a case in point, um, assume that it's just all about sort of pictures of parts of the brain lighting up. It's not about that as, as is practiced now. So let me give you one example. Let's supposing you have a theory that the brain is implementing some type of algorithm. And the implementation of this type of algorithm or mathematical solution to a problem has a particular formalism. Now, the implementation of any algorithm is going to use energy. You can track that energy usage by using the proxy called BOLD. If you think that, say, learning a task has a particular algorithmic form that you can write out as an equation, you can ask where in the brain is this algorithm being implemented. Your theory is or your hypothesis that there is an implementation of this. And if the algorithmic function that you have changes dynamically over time, and a certain activity in the brain changes dynamically over time, then you have perhaps good evidence that in this part of the brain and nowhere else, an algorithmic function approximating that is implemented in this part of the brain. So I think what I'm saying is that 
Imaging is not about images as practiced in the best places. It is about testing theories of how the brain works at a very, very high level and also testing theories of how it doesn't work in disease. So I think it's very easy parody um, imaging because A, it gets a lot of money, B, there's an awful lot of bad imaging neuroscience around. But because there's a lot of bad neuroimaging around, it doesn't mean that this isn't one of the most powerful tools we've ever had for studying the brain. Let me just say that I think a misconception is that a lot of times it's not even about the where in the brain. So a lot of the research is not about where in the brain what region is doing what, but how is it doing it? What is the computation that's underlying it? Um, and so it's not about localization, which is a mistake that, that people make all the time. And when you see that image in the brain, um, it's not necessarily telling you there's more activity in this part of the brain in condition A or B. It's much more complicated than that. It's showing you this is a part of the brain that does some kind of computation. And mostly, a lot of time, we're interested in what computation is the brain doing and not necessarily where is it doing it. And I think when you're talking about misrepresentation, I feel that there is indeed a lot of bad neuroimaging, but I think more than bad neuroimaging, it's more about bad journalism of neuroimaging. Um, that's, I think, a worse uh, problem than, than the actual bad science, I, I, I as agree I see it. Totally, because if I had to look at all the instances of really bad papers or really bad descriptions of papers, as might appear on BBC websites, etc., etc., the latter are the real kind I, I mean, I'm sure there is some very good neuroimaging. Um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we're sitting next to some very good neuroimages. But I think it is uh, disingenuous to blame the journalists. I think the journalists may be to blame and the popularizers may be to blame. But uh, I've read an awful lot of neuroimaging papers uh, that do precisely seek to identify where in the brain something is happening and suggest that a change in blood oxygenation level in this area of the brain, demonstrated in a rather peculiar way, actually, because all neuroimaging shows you is the change in blood oxygenation in a voxel in a three-dimensional space that then has to be mapped, usually, onto a standard atlas of the brain not Ray's brain or Tally's brain or my brain, but a standard atlas of the brain for various technical reasons. Anyhow, which does seek to argue that because this is the area of the brain that shows increased levels of blood oxygenation in this task or in this condition, say in a condition where you see a picture of a certain sort, and that this is an area of the brain that also shows increased blood oxygenation in another condition, say when you're given a fear or an anxiety test, that therefore this image and fear and anxiety are intrinsically linked because of that, what the, what's happening in a particular area of the brain. I don't think you need to look to the social scientist or the historian of systems of thought to look at this. There's a, a wonderful paper by Nikos Logothetis, I think from 2008, uh, which studies many, many, many of these, uh, mis of these misrepresentations in the way in which uh, brain images themselves are forced, often forced, to report their studies. Many of the images that I spoke to were very uh, hostile in the way in which we've just heard to these localizations 
Washington DCs and indeed hostile to the suggestion that they should show the picture of the brain in their scientific papers and they argued that it was the editors of the scientific journals who said you need to put the picture and not just the statistical uh, analysis in your, uh, in your article. So I don't think it's just sloppy journalism. Of course, these, of course brain imaging doesn't tell you nothing uh, but exactly what it tells you in a highly distributed system like the brain, where many, many things are going on at the same time, a highly complex parallel processing system, to suggest that what you see by blood oxygenation in one area of the brain, ignoring everything that happens in the resting brain, by the way, because you move, you, you subtract out what's happening in the brain apart from in this particular condition. I don't think it's just the journalists. <laughs> it's, it's not just a journalist, but I just want to answer, just um, comment on that. So you were talking about the problem of reverse inference. Yeah. Um, so if we think that the amygdala is in, involved in fear, and then we see the amygdala activate while you're thinking about um, oh, see an Obama or face, yes, another or presidential, face, uh, uh, then, then that means that we're afraid of that person. The reverse inference is a, is a problem that's well known, and it's not something that you would see now in top journals by, by good scientists. Um, it's something that, you know, that's when people review papers, if they see reverse inference, it's something that they're quite aware of. It's a problem that, that has been a problem for a while, but, but it's not a problem that you would see now uh, very much in the top um, scientists in top journals, as well as not the problem of using um, just fixation as a baseline, which is the second problem that you talked about. So... Yeah, um, I think it's very important we don't get down to a discussion. This is not a discussion about the um, rights and wrongs of neuroimaging. It's important that neuroimaging is just a technique. It's a technique that some of us will use if we've got a question that can be answered by that technique. But all of us use a lot of different techniques and are not just fixated on neuroimaging. So the topic is not really today about a critique of neuroimaging. There are lots of tools. You know, the microscope was misused. The first person that looked down a microscope, you know, saw something that was uh, clearly uh, absurd. So you wouldn't give up the microscope. No, I'm absolutely absolutely not saying that. I'm not absolutely not fixating on reverse inference either. And uh, I think hypothesis-driven investigations using neuroimaging, um, uh, you know, are, are, are very significant. I do think there's the other question which uh, is it's, it, which is not just a, qu- a problem for neuroimaging. I think it's a bit of a problem which one sees in many other areas of neuroscience, which is the, the argument that you can study the, the brain, the human brain, but also the animal brain, extracted from the embodied uh, existence of that brain and extracted from the naturally occurring situation in which that brain normally conducts most of the things that you're looking at, most of the things that you're interested in. Because the consequences that is kind of inescapably, not just to rule those out as part of your experimental paradigm, but to rule those out as part of your, of your explanatory f- uh, framework. And uh, yes, of course, I'm a social scientist, so I think ruling out the things that happen in the body and in the relationship between bodies and in the, uh, in the embeddedness of human beings in language and systems of meaning, to rule those out and not, in, not incorporate them in your analysis of crucial human capacities is, 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 is a little bit of a mistake. I don't, just for a final repulse on that, I think you're actually parodying uh, much of what um, scientists... Neuroscientists infer from experiments. 
Of course, there are constraints to laboratories. There are constraints that uh, are tackled by good experimental design. And I think it's a foolish scientist who will wildly extrapolate from an experiment done in the laboratory to a wider context, but they will look for other evidence. So, for example, if you were, just to take an example I, I gave, if you're under, trying to understand why, how does somebody get prosopagnosia, you could use neuroimaging to say, well, there seems to be an invariant response in the brain to presentation of a face. Um, now, if we found a person who had a hole in the brain at that particular point in time, not only would they not be able to do the task in the laboratory, but when they go out of the street, they wouldn't be able to recognize their friends. So I think a reasonable person extrapolates when it is appropriate and when there is other evidence as well. Um, we all have to do experiments in laboratories. Physicists do experiments in laboratories and extrapolate into, into, into the wider world. How much you can extrapolate depends upon other sources of evidence. And the lab has a great advantage because it enables you to pinpoint, to control and look at just Absolutely. one I was just trying to generate a little bit more polemic here because we're in danger of uh, <laughs> agreeing with one another. Yes. But we, we could carry on. We probably should not. Peter, and then, and then I'll, yeah. I'll let the... I, I just wanted to respond to one of the things you said, Tully. Uh, you said that the uh, imaging can show which parts of the brain are doing what computations. Now, on pain of intelligibility, of unintelligibility, rather, you've got to unpack that because the brain and the cells of the brain can no more do computations than the planet Mars can do computations. Computations may describe the orbit of Mars and computations may describe what's going on in some segments of the brain or some cell, but the parts of the brain can't possibly do computations. So it seems to me you have the duty to unpack that phrase. Um, well, first of all, let's disagree about that. And then, uh, second of all, um, what I mean is... Well, if first of all, let's disagree. Tell me the disagreement. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I do think the brain is doing computations. Who, and how, can, how can something com- who doesn't know arithmetic do computations, for heaven's sake? Um, I don't even what know would how to answer be, that. What, would, but, what uh, would it be for a brain so to have mastered it? arithmetic? Who is it that knows computations? You do. And, and who am I? I mean, I think, I think that, 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 that is, I think that is a major, I mean, that's the basic of our disagreement. I think I am my brain. That, you think that you're in your brain? Absolutely. Then you're only seven every inches Every feeling, tall. every thought, every, without my brain, I wouldn't be me, but without this arm, I would still be me. Without my legs, I would still be me. Yeah. But without the brain, even without a part without of my brain, the brain, I would not be, be me. No, without the brain, you'd be dead. That doesn't mean that you are your brain. Uh, as I pointed out to you, you you're, you're more than seven inches high. I think thank it's goodness. A, even if I was without my legs, I would be shorter what I am now, but yeah, still the, it would be me. The brain is not a limited case of a mutilated human being. The neck brain is an organ of a human being. It is an organ in virtue of which human beings can do all the remarkable things that they can do. Damage to which means that they won't be able to do the remarkable things they can do. But you're certainly not your brain. Let's, let's put it like that. Every thought I have is generated by my brain, to my opinion. Every feeling that I have is generated by my brain, to my opinion. If that if simply means that you couldn't have any of those thoughts or feelings without a brain, then of course what you say is true. But that's all it amounts to. 
It doesn't mean that the brain is doing the thinking of the feeling. You're doing the thinking of the feeling, which you wouldn't be doing if not for your brain. I think that's why I'm not a philosopher. I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> I can't To plead that you're not a philosopher, only a neuroscientist, means that not you're only, not... only. I didn't say only. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I did. That simply means that you're not addressing conceptual problems which you have an obligation to, to address on the pain of talking nonsense, which is, well, after all, something which a great many scientists in the history of science, alas, have done, as you surely all recognise, because the history of science is littered with the wreckage of nonsensical theories. It's I the think task I disagree. No, no more disagree so than claim. the history of philosophy. Oh, less... <laughs> Ray, Ray, you heard me talk about the lamentable Cartesian and the lamentable empiricist philosophies in mind. Philosophy makes more mistakes than science because it's the task of philosophy to crawl along the boundary lines between sense and nonsense, and understandably, very often, you fall over into the nonsensical side. The task of philosophy is to crawl along the boundary lines between truth and falsehood. So you're much less likely to talk nonsense. Nevertheless, if the conceptual framework you deploy is inadequate, then you too will talk nonsense, and that has to be eradicated. And the way to eradicate it is by careful conceptual considerations. Um, so on my next... <laughs> OK, we have a few minutes for the audience. <laughs> but no nonsense, please. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a mic here somewhere. Yeah, there, with a cap. Thanks. First thing I want to do is comment upon the lack of resolution about the complaints about the lack of resolution of neuroimaging. Uh, neuroimaging is in status in today, it's in the first generation, but there are all kinds of technologies emergent. And so it would be wrong to say that neuroimaging is neuroimaging. It's like saying that Galileo was able to look at ships entering Venice with his first telescope. That was but the first telescope. That was not uh, the Hubble telescope. And so not only there, there are different emergent imaging technologies, but also technologies able to manipulate the brain to ex- extraordinary resolution, which actually answer many of the objections that Peter Hacker has made. For instance, optogenetics. We know that by firing certain neurons, we cause certain forms of behavior to absolute resolution. And interestingly, another thing which has been completely ignored is behavioral genetics. Uh, The mind uh, uh, emerges not only from the brain, from genes. You delete certain genes and certain mental properties, certain properties of the mind disappear, which again refutes your claim that it's it's the body and that it's incoherent to say it emerges from the brain. I I find an incoherence in your claims of incoherence. Do you want us to respond? Um. Um, I mean, my, 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 my response... Of course, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, there's imaging that works at the level of the single neuron and uh, in multiple different ways. Um, that's not where we are at the moment. So partly what I was talking about was what, where we are at the moment. But the other point that I was trying to make was that actually this is not just a technical question, it's a conceptual question, because we do not yet understand at what scale it is appropriate to try and image those kinds of processes. So that would be one question. The other question, the other point that you, you raise about uh, stimulating neurons to cause a certain kind of behavior is quite interesting. 
Um, another, one of the characteristic ways in which a lot of the neuroscience works is saying if you damage this part of the brain, then this kind of behavior no longer takes place. But I don't think you should assume that there's a kind of reciprocality between damaging a bit of the brain and the behavior not taking place and arguing that therefore that is the bit of the brain that is in some sense or other where that bit of behavior or where those thoughts take place. So there's not a reversibility between the pathology and the consequences of the pathology and then believing that that site that is lesioned is in a sense the site where this happens. Of course, understanding the consequences of those pathologies is absolutely Absolutely crucial, and I can. Th- I think you can do that perfectly well without getting yourself into the kind of philosophical minefields that uh, that Peter Hacker has, has kind of suggested that you're traipsing in. I don't think you are actually traipsing in those minefields, but that's another question. <coughs> okay, we're going to take two questions at a time over there. I have to say, I resent a bit the comment from Dr. Hacker when you say the neuron has to know arithmetic. Um, I think it's a much more basic representation and metaphor that you use when you say that uh, the brain is doing computations. All you need is basically a clicker, a transistor, right? And you can represent any operation in binary form. It's more of a metaphor. I wouldn't say you need a conceptual understanding of arithmetic at the neuronal level. I don't know what you would say to that. (laughs) Well, if you admit that it's a metaphor, I'm perfectly happy. Uh, what I told Tully was this has got to unpack it. If you unpack it as a metaphor, that's fine. Now it's your obligation to unpack the metaphor because a metaphor is insignificant unless you can unpack it. Um, Two more. One down here and then at the back over there. Um. I, I had major brain surgery four years ago to remove a very large skull-based tumor. I emerged from the surgery with face blindness, with a loss of visual memory, with you know, certain types of visual memory, with an inability, very tremendous difficulty in learning to use new tools. I'm still using XP. Windows is no longer supporting XP in April, and I can't learn a newer one. I'm terrified. I'm terrified. How am I going to communicate with the world on a computer on which we're all so dependent if I can't learn to do another, you know, thing? It's this affects, you know, I've had to learn around how to get around. It's, it's that, that old trite thing about if there's a landslide and the road is closed, you have to find a way to get around it. And after a while, a new road is built. And that's, as I understand, my brain is doing, is building, you know, these new, as they call them, neural pathways to try to do some of the things in a different way. My friend sitting beside me doesn't realize when I tease him about being a tall Swedish guy that that's the only way I recognize him. (laughs) And that if he is sitting down in a crowd, I won't know who he is. There's things that the brain does. There's amazing things the brain does and also ways that people respond and say, there's nothing wrong with your brain, you're articulate, and refuse to acknowledge that I'm having some difficulties with some things. As you say, my brain and my mind are the same. I, am not, I don't have memories of childhood. They're not located in my elbow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think 
just to highlight the positive um, side of it, which is the brain is very flexible. And, and like you say, if we, if we have some kind of impairment, um, the brain many times finds other ways to solve the problem. And I do mean the neuron solving the problem, the brain solving the problem. <laughs> okay, one very, very last um, question. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Hi, um, my question is to the whole board. Um, I think we can all agree that one of the problems is the fact... Sorry. I think we can all agree that one of the problems is the fact that you guys disagree about your language and how to describe the mind. Can you see any time in the future where you can work together and find a language with which we can all go forward and better understand the mind using both what we've found with fMRI machines, which I'm sure, Peter Hacker, you agree, don't really work that well, but we're working on it. Um, and what has been found with psychology in order to better understand the mind? Well, um, I think you know, philosophy has a, a very important role, and I think one of the roles it has is making clear the assumptions in our, um, that we deploy the right sort of semantic sort of frame of reference for a problem. I'd be very happy to work with a, um, psych, uh, with, with a philosopher that I could really have an extended conversation with and that I could <laughs> understand. And I'd be more than happy if um, there was a consensus that this would help neuroscience in my next grant application to also apply for a position of a philosopher. And when I go before the panel, to they'll say, well, can you justify it? They say, well, we can understand everything else here. But that philosopher, what's could that going to do? Well, then, you know... Um, if that argument would be sentient, it would be a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to drink lots of cups of coffee. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, so I'm saying that, yes, philosophy has an important role. Uh, I think philosophy hasn't done itself a, a great service because a lot of it seems to couch itself in semantics and a type of obfuscation. Um, but, you know, when we hear articulate philosophers who are here today, um, my ears prick up here. Um, it doesn't seem to me that, in principle, there are any difficulty at all in getting on, in, in uh, reconciling what I hope is decent philosophy with what neuroscientists are doing. That is, everything neuroscientists can do can be described without the kinds of flaws, if I'm right, that they very often uh, suffer from, that their work very often suffers from. Uh, I think philosophers who do their job properly can provide good, fruitful, and constructive criticisms to neuroscientists, and everything cogent that the neuroscientist wishes to say will be well expressed. Um, I worked for, uh, for some years with, uh, with Max Bennett in Australia, uh, very intensively. Uh, it was an enormous fun. I learned an enormous amount. I hope he did. Uh, and I don't think that the result is... Uh, uh, is without interest. Um, after all, the task of philosophy in this respect is clarification of the conceptual apparatus which the neuroscientist employs in his work and in the description of the results of his work. Whether that's done by a philosopher or neuroscientist doesn't matter a hoot. This isn't a trade union dispute. It's a, di <laughs> it's a, dis it's a question about different kinds of intellectual activities. Empirical intellectual activities are one thing, and examination of the conceptual structures and framework that describe those activities is another thing, and they're done by different methods. 
No amount of neuroscience research is going to clarify what, what it is to have a mind. That's a conceptual question. Equally, no amount of neuroscientific research is going to shed light on the nature of freedom of the will, a thorny conceptual question, but not one which is, admits of empirical resolution. I don't think there's any problem except problems of communication. Now, those are great because of the departmental organization of our universities. <laughs> it's also true that an awful lot of philosophers, particularly philosophers who work in the domains of philosophy of mind and, and cognitive science, uh, sing the hallelujah chorus to the scientists. Now, it's my profound belief that the scientists don't need hallelujah choruses. What they need is cogent criticism, which will help them. Hallelujahs won't. But I do think it's perfectly possible and highly desirable that we should cooperate more. Um, there are, of course, many different types of philosophy, and not all philosophy operates as a kind of thought police on the sciences, um, and uh, perhaps that's not what is necessary at all times. Um, I can't talk about the collaboration between philosophers and neuroscientists, but I can talk about the collaboration between social scientists and neuroscientists, which is absolutely something which I've been supporting over the last uh, period of my work. Uh, to give you one tiny example, uh, social scientists for 150 years since the problem of urbanization arose have been talking about mental life in the metropolis. How is the human mind and human mental life transformed when humans move from a rural to an urban environment? Classical work in sociology has been done on that, and classical work in the relations between sociology and psychiatry and social psychiatry over the first 50 years of the 20th century. That relationship has unfortunately broken down. And that some of the work that I'm doing with my colleagues at King's is trying exactly to build those collaborative relations where you do work between social scientists, historians, and, uh, and neuroscientists to explore the ways in which the mental life of individuals and groups is transformed by their living in different kinds of urban and rural environments. Something which is crucial, actually, as we seek to understand some very pragmatic questions, which is why rates of certain types of mental illness vary in enormously uh, across different kinds of urban environments. So I'm kind of interested in the collaborations rather, uh, rather pragmatic and empirical, uh, around pragmatic and empirical questions, and there I hope that uh, it is possible, especially for people at early stages in their career, to recognise that they can find mutual ways of posing the questions and mutual experimental and empirical designs to try and resolve them. I'd like, I'd like to... Oh, I'd like to just add an addendum, because I, if Nicholas thinks that I'm functioning here as a thought policeman, he's misidentified it altogether. Philosophers don't tell neuroscientists what to say, what they can think what they like. If they want to talk nonsense, it's fine. That, that's their affair. What the task of the philosopher is, is not to tell neuroscientists how they should or shouldn't talk, but to point out to them when they talk nonsense, when they transgress the bounds of sense... By committing, by, for example, ascribing mental predicates to the brain, which it only makes sense to ascribe to the animal as a whole, or when they misrepresent the nature of memory by describing it as any change in the behavior of the organism consequent upon experience, and so on and so forth through some hundreds of examples. Now, the error of the neuroscientist is not stipulating new uses. Neuroscientists can stipulate as many new uses as they wish, and it's innocuous as it stands. 
The error comes when the new use is crossed with the old use, and inferences are drawn from the new use, which can only be drawn from the old one. Then incoherence results. That's something that philosophers can point out. If the neuroscientist doesn't wish to heed the philosopher, that's fine too, but nonsense results. Do you have the last word? Well, the last word. I'll give Ray the last word. But everybody will want to have the last word. But just going back to your... I'll be the police. I'm going to stop. Definition of memory, the Candell, you know, exchange of behaviour consequent upon experience. That's limited, but it was also fine as a construct at a particular point in time. But contemporary ideas of memory embody the notion that memory is not only about the past, but also about creating models about the future, that we construct our futures that we have not yet experienced on the basis of acquired memories from the past. So I think there's a richer view of memory than, than you've described. But having a simple, inadequate um, definition is fine too. It provides a starting point. Most science evolves, and I'm sure that if you read a contemporary account of of, of, of memory, say, by Dan Schechter or people like that, you may have a much changed view. Thank you so much. <laughs>